son of a bitch. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the show. Uh, as per usual, I will be pouring knowledge into your cranium. Um, we're going to talk about the Iowa caucus. There are a bunch of known mistakes. And, uh, you know, people are doubling down. Um, they're refusing to count it properly. We really got all types of nonsense going on. And um, there's even, like, the admitted fuckery is going to blow your mind because you're going to hear it and you're going to be like, that's something that happens? Like, they're allowed to just say that? So get ready for that. Uh, then I got a million clips of um, CNN going into protect Pete mode. So we had a debate the other night, and uh, Pete did terrible. Bernie absolutely crushed it. Klobuchar, surprisingly, did well. Um, and there's a panicked reaction to that. They were The media is trying so hard to give Pete a surge after Iowa, um, and it, the surge temporarily worked. But it looks like, you know, things kind of went back to homeostasis in, uh, in New Hampshire, and Bernie still maintains a pretty solid lead. Um, but the media is just, I mean, they can't help themselves. They're trying so hard. Wait until you see some of the arguments that they're making for Pete. It's ridiculous. Then we have uh, Chris Matthews going after Bernie Sanders in the most hyperbolic way imaginable. Um, I got an update on Bloomberg and what he's up to. That's insane. An update on Biden and what he's up to. Ben Shapiro goes after Bernie Sanders. Um, The war in Afghanistan is still ongoing and still a disaster. And then later on in the show, we have uh, an insurgent progressive campaign that shows this show some love. So that's interesting. I think that's interesting. My alarm didn't go off today. (laughs) So uh, I'm a little sleepy, but I bet I'll work myself up very quickly. Um, Okay, anyway, without further ado, let's get started. And we're going to talk about what's happening in Iowa. So if you thought that the Iowa caucus was crazy up until this point, It's even crazier than you can imagine in your wildest dreams. So there are a bunch of known mistakes in the Iowa caucus data. Let me repeat that. Known mistakes in the Iowa caucus data. Some places were double counted. Some weren't counted at all. There's a bunch of math errors. Basically, any kind of mistake you could think of. It exists in the Iowa caucus data. Now, here's where you, a normal person, goes, okay, Kyle, so they should fix it. <laughs> no, that's not what they're doing. I, you want to talk about making people lose faith in democracy. This story says it all. Um, look at what the New York Times reporter Trip Gabriel told us the other day. This is quoting an opinion in an internal email from an IDP attorney. IDP stands for Iowa Democratic Party. Look, the incorrect math on the caucus math worksheets must not be changed to ensure the integrity of the process. 
the incorrect math on the caucus worksheets, caucus math worksheet, must not be changed to ensure the integrity of the process. So they say, oh, oh, you don't get it. That, those are legal documents. If you change a legal document, it's illegal. So you can't fix the mistakes. I don't even know what to say. I'm at a loss for words. I am at a loss for words on the Kyle Kalinske show on Secular Talk. Very rare, but it just happened. Some things are so stupid you can't even muster a response. There's nothing there. (laughs) There's blankness running through my head. That's the craziest thing I've ever heard in my life, ever. It's not even close. So it, it gets worse. It gets worse, believe it or not. I know it like, seems like it can't get worse. It does. So CNN wrote an article about this. By the way, they declared a winner. Half the news outlets are like, we can't declare a winner. We see even NBC, Steve Kornacki, he's the numbers guy for NBC. He's like, I, I see outstanding incorrect data. Like, I see the mistakes. I'm not going to declare a winner when you added wrong. So like half the news outlets, or maybe even more than half the news outlets, are like, we're not going to – we see the mistakes too. We see them. But CNN, right before Mayor Pete did a town hall, they go, oh, 100% of the vote in, Mayor Pete wins. So they give him his, like, fourth surge in positive coverage in an attempt to get him over the top in New Hampshire. And temporarily – he serves into a tie with Bernie in New Hampshire. Now, thankfully, he did terrible in the debate, and there was a Klobuchar surge, and the Klobuchar surge has taken away from Mayor Pete, so everything kind of went back to homeostasis, where Bernie has a relatively solid lead in New Hampshire. But this stuff is wild, man. But CNN says the following. What went wrong? While some precinct officials told CNN that the software performed as needed is the app, others experienced problems with the app and the reporting process. One precinct chair in Iowa described the failure of the app to CNN, saying that the app got stuck on the very last step when reporting results, which was uploading a picture of the precinct's results. The chair said they were, able, they were finally able to upload the results and screenshotted what they uploaded. But the app showed different numbers than what they had submitted as captured in their screenshot. The app was changing votes. By the way, there's a follower of mine on Twitter who did a, a, a graph breakdown of where those mistakes were made. Sit down. You're going to be shocked to find this out. Most of the mistakes went against Bernie. The good news is the Bernie campaign is not taking this laying down. That night, a couple nights ago, where CNN said, oh, 100% counted, uh, Pete wins. The Bernie campaign did a press release where they said, actually, we won, not just the popular vote, but also the state delegate equivalents, which is what they're using to determine the winner. And they laid out the specific mistakes in the specific precincts that make Bernie get over the top. Listen, I, there's this guy by the name of Taniel who's been breaking this down a thousand ways to Sunday. 
and he's on top of it, giving you all the specifics. Hey, there's a mistake here. Hey, there's a mistake here. If you count everything properly, Bernie wins. Bernie wins. So I, I know that. Now you know that. If they do try to say, when all said and done, after the re-canvas, the recount, that Pete wins, just know it's in the open. It's in the open. They're trying to steal the election. It's not a question. It's not up in the air. That is what they're doing. And when they go as far as to say stuff like, oh, we have to preserve the incorrect math to keep the integrity of the process, they're not even trying to hide it. They're not. And then we learned in, in Nevada, one of the people who's in charge of protecting the vote count is worked on Mayor Pete's campaign, never mind in some you know, sleazy financial institution that was involved in God knows what kind of fuckery. So uh, there's all types of problems, man. And I, I hate to be conspiratorial, but what are you supposed to do when all the evidence and all the data in front of you points in that direction? And you would have to be you would have to have a cinder block where your brain is supposed to be in order to not see conspiracy written all over this. Again, it's out in the open. So I'll just come out and say it. And some people will disagree with me saying this. Some people will think I'm going too far. If Bernie Sanders loses New Hampshire, it's rigged rigged. <laughs> it's rigged rigged. And I say that because the polls for the longest time have had him, I mean, some polls have him 15 points up in New Hampshire. You know, uh, on average, he's probably up seven that's not, that's not a thing where you just lose it. That doesn't happen. They're trying to say Mayor Pete surged 14 points in a week based on fake declaring victory in Iowa and the media, you know, telling him nonstop he's the winner and trying to puff him up. I, I simply do not believe it. I don't believe it. So sorry, but if you tell oh, Kyle's putting on his tinfoil hat, what do you want me to do in a situation where in Iowa, Pete's campaign put over 40 grand into the app that was used to count the results, and they're openly saying, hey, it was switching results at the end. We got stuck on the last step, and it was switching results. How do you get a situation like we had where they gave um, Bernie support to Tom Steyer and Deval Patrick? How do you get that happen? And then, by the way, why is it they fixed some of that, but now they're saying we can't fix any math results that are on the worksheets? They're, they're doing it in real time, man. So here's what I propose. Bernie called for a recanvas in certain precincts. Okay, great. Wait until you get those results from those certain precincts. If they come back and try to say Pete won anything, sue him. Sue him. I, guys, I literally trust the judicial process and even a right-leaning judge more than I trust the people who are in charge of counting this, namely the DNC who screwed Bernie in 2016, and the Iowa Democratic Party, who's obviously now in cahoots with the DNC, and with CNN, by the way. They sat on the results until Pete had a town hall, and then they tried to say, 100% counting, Pete won. And when people were like, hey, here's specific mistakes that would put Bernie over the top, they were like, what? No hablo inglés, what? We don't know what you're saying. Okay, yet again... Man, sometimes I say things on this show, and I'm amazed at how right I am. <laughs> what did I say? Bernie has to overwin in order to win. If you just look at the, the vote count, there were 180,000 people who participated in the caucus in Iowa. Bernie won by over 6,000 votes when all is said and done. That's about a 3.5% victory. 
That's not really a small victory. That's a medium-sized victory. In order for Bernie to win, he probably needs to win by over 5%, maybe even 10%. So just so you know, he has to overwin in order to win. So don't say I didn't tell you. We, moving forward, no messing around. We gotta, you better be doubly involved, triply involved. You know, as far as, as you've been involved to this point, double it, triple it. Because it's necessary in order to win. And again, if we get to the point where let's say Bernie wins um, the most votes but doesn't get a majority, so he doesn't win it on the first ballot, it has to go to the second ballot, we're not letting it stand if they try to take it from him. That's not happening. We will go to the DNC, the convention, and we will, there will be millions of us marching in the streets demanding that the person with the most votes becomes the nominee. And if they try to jack it from us, um, we're not going to let that happen. But if indeed that happens, Congratulations to Donald Trump on winning his second term. So this is what's going on in Iowa. We got New Hampshire coming up um, tomorrow from, you know, when this segment is being done. It's coming up tomorrow. Um, And we'll see what happens. Like I said, if Bernie wins, the question is how much Bernie wins by if there's no fuckery. If there is fuckery, then somebody else could win. So there, I said it. You're not supposed to say stuff like that, but... I think you would have to be a silly person to not acknowledge that, given everything that we know that happened in Iowa. Okay, next. CNN and their protect Mayor Pete mode. CNN and Mayor Pete's campaign are in cahoots, and both of them are in cahoots with the DNC and the Iowa Democratic Party. Now, why do I say that? Well, the results are a majority of the news organizations are refusing to, to make a call in the Iowa caucus. Why? Because there are outstanding mistakes that would give the election to Bernie. Well, it turns out the Iowa Democratic Party and the DNC sat on the, all the results, 100% reporting, until Mayor Pete was going to do a town hall on CNN. And then as soon as Mayor Pete walks out on stage, by the way, who was right before him? Bernie. They didn't say anything about the Iowa caucus. Then Mayor Pete comes out and, oh, would you look at that? The stuff is released at 9 o'clock on the dot, 9 o'clock at night, and CNN says to Mayor Pete, oh, it's official. You've just been declared the winner of the Iowa uh, caucus. That timing sure is, uh, you know, sketchy. And what's also sketchy is Bernie won by 6,000 votes, but you're not calling him the winner. And there are outstanding mistakes that have Bernie win. So just across the board, if you're looking at this and you're going, wow, this is um, really questionable. You're correct to think that. Very correct to think that. So, further evidence of CNN playing the protect Pete game, trying to give him a surge and then protect that surge in the polls. They did a segment on, you're going to be surprised to hear this, the meanness of Bernie Sanders supporters. You know, the old Bernie bro trope that they resurrected yet again. And look at how silly they have to be to make this argument. This is really something else. 
Senator Bernie Sanders heads into Tuesday's New Hampshire primary, riding high after a very strong finish in the Iowa caucuses. He has far more social media followers than any other uh, Democratic candidate, but as our senior uh, investigative correspondent, Drew Griffin, explains, some Sanders fans are using bullying and hostile tactics on social media to try to drown out his critics. You are one thing bad about Bernie Sanders online anywhere, and Strident Sanders supporters may attack you personally. Multiple targets describe to CNN what they call a Sanders swarm. It's not clear if the Sanders followers responsible are listening. In recent weeks, trolling Senator Elizabeth Warren as a snake, and in post after post, labeling Mayor Pete Buttigieg a rat. <laughs>
somebody who's not taking big money. So all those positive uh, policy positions, you'll look past that and go to somebody objectively worse because his online supporters are kind of mean. Please, please, you guys look so silly. You have no idea how silly you look. And again, it really does show, I think, that Pete's campaign is in cahoots with CNN and the Iowa Democratic Party and the DNC. Because this is like right on time, right on time, as they're trying to screw Bernie in Iowa. And all the evidence shows that. Instead of CNN accurately covering that story, they bury that story and they run with, I can, look at how mean his supporters are. Why are you gaslighting us? You want to know why people are mean? Because they're trying to steal an Iowa caucus from Bernie Sanders. That's why people are mean right now. And Pete went out there and declared victory early incorrectly, and he helped fund the app that does the counting. All that seems pretty important, but you're going to gaslight us and act like there's no story there. The only story here is how mean his supporters are. Well, you better get ready because a lot more is coming your way, and I'm happy a lot more is coming your way because maybe we can shame you into being a non-shitty person. I know it's only an outside chance, but you know what? Let's take that chance. Because uh, somebody's got to correct the record. And if it takes mean Bernie supporters to do so, so be it. Now Chris Matthews is going to show us um, that perhaps it's time for him to retire. You're going to like this one. This is uh, next level stupid. Chris Matthews went on a completely unhinged anti-Bernie rant the other night. Um, It's so unhinged that Chris Hayes of MSNBC, who's sitting on the panel with him, was like, what exactly are you talking about, bro? You're not, this is wild, you're making no sense. So this instantly went viral for comedic reasons. Take a look.
But I, I don't want to get into this. You know, I'm on every night. I'll let the Democrats figure this out. I, I have my own views of the word socialist, and I'll be glad to tell them, share them with you in private. And they go back to uh, the early 1950s. I have an attitude about them. I remember the Cold War. I have an attitude towards Castro. I believe if Castro and the, and the, and the Reds had won the Cold War, there would have been executions in Central Park, and I might have been one of the ones getting executed. And certain other people would be there cheering, okay? So I have a problem with people who took the other side. I don't know who Bernie, Bernie supports over these years. I don't know what he means by social. One week it's Denmark. We're going to be like Denmark. Okay, that's harmless. That's a, basically a capitalist country with a lot of good social welfare programs. Denmark is harmless. Pretty clearly in the Denmark is category, yeah. Are you sure? How do you know? Did he tell you that? Well, I mean, that's what he says, and that's what his agenda calls for, right? Yeah, yeah. He's not calling for it. Let's see. Let's see. Let's figure that one out. Chris Matthews is worried that a Bernie Sanders presidency would execute him in Central Park. Or if, whatever, the Soviets had won the uh, Cold War, that guys like him would have been executed in Central Park. He's talking about this in the context of Bernie Sanders' presidential campaign in 2020. You know, this is so immensely ridiculous that people immediately started tweeting at him an article from a few years back where Bernie was arguing that even though I despise Ann Coulter and I think she's wrong about everything, uh, we believe in free speech in this country and she should have the ability to speak at a college because there were riots in response to Ann Coulter speaking at a college a few years back. And Bernie said, stop with the riots. Even though we massively disagree with her and she's terrible, she has every right to speak. It's Bernie Sanders who said that. Bernie Sanders, a deep believer in the First Amendment and the Constitution of the United States. Deep supporter of free speech. And Chris Matthews is out there saying, you know, what side is Bernie on? Would he have supported the execution of me in uh, the public square from communists? See, this is, he's doing that gross trick that the far right does, which is, They try to confuse you and conflate every version of leftism together. So, you know, they try to act like social democracy, the Scandinavian model, is really, in its heart of hearts, equivalent to the Soviet Union, Venezuela, any, you know, authoritarian left government where there's centralized power and they can take away your uh, freedom and liberty and they control the media, and they don't allow dissent. Like, there's an attempt to conflate every variety of leftism, and that's socially acceptable in a way that it is not socially acceptable to to conflate every version of right-wing politics. If I come out here and I try to argue that a libertarian is equivalent to a fascist, and I say that, yeah, even though they, you know, believe in legalizing drugs and legalizing prostitution and ending the wars... Even though libertarians believe in that, I don't care. You're on the right side of the spectrum. You know who else is on the right side of the spectrum? Hitler. So it's the same thing, and I try to conflate it. Hey, would they support uh, genocide? Maybe. Why? I mean, where do they stand? They're on the right, and so we're fascists. What do you want me to tell you? That's the level of analysis. But for some reason, it's totally socially accessible to do that about Bernie and to act like you know he agrees with Venezuela or he would agree with public executions, even though he very clearly has his entire career believed in nonviolence. Such a ridiculous point that Chris Hayes is like, dude, what? Bernie's crystal clear about what he supports. He does support a Denmark-like model. 
all he's doing is carrying on the legacy of, you know, an FDR on economic issues. Um, you could say even LBJ, war on poverty type stuff. Um, Martin Luther King, who famously is a democratic socialist. But look at how hyperbolic they get, simply because the guy has now come up and is the front runner on the democratic side who believes in everybody having health care, free college, a living wage. Look at how hyperbolic they get. It's really embarrassing. And somebody who has that level of political analysis should not be on TV. Because it's just, it's, it's, that's lunacy. That's so off base and that's such a smear, whether or not he recognizes it, that it's comical. Imagine Bernie Sanders fear-mongering about that man executing people in the public square or being okay with executions in the public square. Buckle up, guys, because we're going to have, you know, basically a full year of this talk leading up to the election. Because they have nothing on Bernie, guys. They have nothing on him. So what do they do? They go right back to, oh, my God, socialism. Oh, my God, communism. Oh, my God, socialism, communism, bad. Oh, my God, are they going to kill people? Oh, my God, are they going to ban the media from criticizing them? Oh, my God. They're so authoritarian. Oh, my God. It's going to be nonstop, you know, label fear-mongering from now until the election, especially with Bernie as the frontrunner. I need you to reflect on the fact that in mainstream media, they're stuck on the most basic, bare minimum level of political analysis. And label, honestly, man, labels, they're really not that useful because most people don't know what the hell the definitions are. I mean, Bernie has won among self-described moderate Democrats. He, he did that in 2016 in the primary. And you're like, what? That makes no sense. He's further left than Hillary. Yes, but people don't know what the definitions are. They just listen to Bernie talk about the issues, and they go, oh, I agree with him. It makes sense. They don't care about the labels. But this is the level of analysis that our professional pundits are stuck on. Let's only talk about labels, as if that tells us anything at all. It doesn't. But it's all they got. They can't go after Bernie on the policy, so they just try to smear him on the label front, and it gets this hyperbolic and this ridiculous. Well, we see through it, and you're a joke, Chris, and uh, maybe it's time to pack it in and retire. Okay, next. Next. Chuck Todd. I got a couple Chuck Todd stories. Chuck Todd and the cast of Meet the Press um, concerned Concern trolled Bernie Sanders over him, quote, alienating billionaires with his campaign rhetoric. I mean, going back to this idea of you don't, don't take money from billionaires, I think the challenge with the Democrats is that there's plenty of billionaires who are actually aligned with this whole proposal of what America should look like. Yeah, I don't think it's alienating them. I don't think it's actually effective because this, it creates – there's not an American 
person that wakes up every single morning that doesn't say, I'm going to get up in the morning to, so that I someday either can be rich or my kid can be rich. So this whole misalignment that the Democrats have against the, the aspiration, aspiration it, just, it doesn't feel productive. Well, can I just tell you, that? Yeah, this is what people forget about. Uh, I think Democrats blow this sometimes with particularly voters of color is not coming across as aspirational. Right. Personal. Cory Booker and Tom Steyer have been the only two people on this debate stage, Michael Steele, who have who, who sort of go, like, wait a minute, people want to make money. Right. Well, don't don't say they don't. Yeah. And when you think of uh, when you think of billionaires in America, at least when I think of billionaires in America, I think of Bill Gates, I think of Jeff Bezos, I think of people who have oh, maybe yeah, but don't forget Donald Trump is giving billionaires a bad name. But they've, they've made a fortune making our lives better. Right. No, I wouldn't go that far. It has given billionaires a really bad name, so I don't know. No, well, I, I, would actually, I, would actually, I would actually say that they came off with Mitt Romney, right? People were trying to say that Mitt Romney was a, was a problem because he was rich. That wasn't the problem. He just didn't connect with people. And I think that we, what we have to be very careful is that creating unnecessary class war when we have plenty of people who actually it, do contribute. Class warfare inside a primary is usually a problem. Anyway, and Michael. They have no idea what they're talking about, none whatsoever. As if it's Bernie who started the class war. No, he's responding to the class war that's been declared for decades by the uber-wealthy on working people. I mean, look at their framing on this. As if it's not the case that rich people, billionaires, corporations have bought our government and rigged the rules in their favor. That's exactly what they've done. Remember that Princeton study that came out a few years back, I believe in 2013 or 2014, which found that the U.S. effectively functions as an oligarchy? If you're in that top 1%, your policy preferences almost always get implemented. If you're in the bottom 50%, yours basically never get implemented. So that's the thing that people are objecting to. People are objecting to the fact that the top 1% now pay an effectively lower tax rate than middle-class families. That's something we learned recently, and this is a... a a change that came with Trump's 2017 tax bill. Now, the, the richest people in the country pay an effective lower tax rate than regular people. This is what people are objecting to. People are objecting to the wealthy and corporations rigging the rules and making life harder for them and, and helping themselves. You know, we have a system where it's not... And here's the main point, guys. They think like, oh... Why are they complaining? We already live in a meritocracy, but we don't live in a meritocracy. A meritocracy means the harder you work, the further you go. As I've explained on this show before, some of the hardest working people in the country are still living at or below the poverty line. One of the hardest working people I ever met worked two or three jobs all the time and was still living at or below the poverty line. So don't tell me that you're, you're that big of a simpleton where you don't understand that the way the system works is not that the harder you work, the further you go. It's clearly not that. It's obviously not that. Uh, we don't even have a living wage. So you could work full time and not make enough money to survive. I mean, that's insane. That's crazy. You can work full time and not make enough money to survive. Meanwhile, you got some people, they're not fully grasping just how much a billion dollars really is. And they're not grasping, but there's only about 600 billionaires in the United States. When you add up the wealth of just the Walton family, just the Walton family, the Walmart, and they didn't, they didn't build Walmart. 
they're the offspring of the dude who built Walmart. And four people have more wealth than the bottom 50% of the country combined. On what planet does that make sense, guys? On what planet is that okay? That you could be the failed sons and the failed daughters of somebody who built Walmart, and you are just handed immense power and control in society. Why is it that Republicans understand that, you know, hey, you got to work for what you get. You shouldn't just have freebies handed out to you. They understand that in the context of, like, food stamps and people getting food to survive. They act like that's unjust and illegitimate, but they're totally fine with hand-me-downs to billionaires' kids where they don't have to work another day in their lives and they can keep breaking the system in their favor. I mean, it, it's infuriating. By the way, notice what Cory, uh, what um, Chuck Todd said there. He said Cory Booker and Tom Steyer there are the only people who really spoke about, you know, hey, we need to be aspirational and people want to make money. And how are Tom Steyer and Cory Booker doing? Chuck Todd. He's like, oh, this is a mistake Democrats make a lot. They're not aspirational. Well, we have two candidates that are, Cory Booker and Tom Steyer. And they're doing terribly, perhaps because your political analysis is pure trash and you have no idea what you're talking about. The funny thing is there's actually nobody who's against aspirational politics or against people working their way up the ladder running in the Democratic primary. The idea that, like, Bernie's against that, no. Bernie just wants a more fair, equal, just system. And what Bernie understands that these idiots don't is that your human value is not the same as your economic value. Chuck Todd and everybody else in this conversation, in their mind, they've conflated, oh, your economic value is the same as your human value. So obviously if you've earned earned $5 billion, you earned it. You earned it. But no, that's not the reality. It's not the case that the person who works full-time and doesn't make enough money to survive, like that's all their work. That's it. Their economic value is the, the beginning and the end of the discussion. I mean, what a grim way to view human life. What Bernie understands is, no, 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 your human value is different from your economic value. And he wants to have a system that more accurately links those two things together. So, in other words, you should always make a living wage if you're working. That's Bernie's idea. And the people at the top end should pay enough in taxes where... You can still be rich, but it's not preposterously rich. It's not wealthy to the point where you can just buy the system and rig the rules. That's what Bernie's in favor of. He understands there's a fundamental difference between your economic value and your human value. It really is wild that, you know, at this late date, look at what these pundits, look at their perception of the world. Look at their perception of how society works. They really think like, what do you mean? The billionaires, they just worked harder and they're better than us. They really think it's that simple. Oh, yeah, they just worked harder and they're better than us. It's not like any of them were, you know, exploiting cheap labor and riding a, a wave to the top on, based off the work of others. No, 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 no. It's not like they rigged the rules to give themselves an advantage when it comes to tax law, when it comes to uh, labor laws, etc. No, 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 no. They just work harder than us and they're better people than us. So why would you go after them? 
all Bernie wants is a more fair, more just, more equitable, more rational, more logical system that gives everybody an equal shot. What Chuck Todd and all the idiots on the panel are doing, without even realizing it, is they're defending a 100-yard dash where some people start the race at the 80-yard line, and you're back there at the, at the zero-yard line, and you've got to start running and somehow beat this person. It's not a fair race. It's not a fair fight. And that's not equal opportunity. That's not a meritocracy. But then again, this is why Chuck Todd is hired for that position. He's hired for that position particularly because he will rationalize the status quo and think that's intelligent and think that's, you know, poignant political commentary. He will rationalize the status quo. That's what you're watching him do right there. That's why, you know, Chuck Todd has risen through the ranks, and now he's the host of Meet the Press, even though he's not bright. That's why Wolf Blitzer is on CNN and gets 1,000 hours a day, is because Wolf Blitzer will rationalize the status quo. They did not see Bernie's movement coming in 2016. They did not see Occupy Wall Street coming back in the day. And now they're, not, they're still not grasping with the reality that Bernie Sanders is the frontrunner, and there's a good reason why he's a frontrunner, that people are done with the broken politics, the corrupt politics, the, the new robber baron era, which we're definitely living in, people have had it. And Chuck Todd is totally oblivious to it. Okay. All right, I got Chuck Todd again. I got one more of him. Chuck Todd concerned trolled Bernie Sanders about his support of socialists around the world, and um, Bernie casually dismantled him. Chuck Todd is convinced that this is like, you know, the Republicans are waiting to drop this attack on Bernie, and it is a devastating attack that's definitely going to work. Please, by all means, use the, that attack, Republicans, which is the same attack you've used forever against Bernie, and he's still the most popular senator in the country. What percentage of voters, honestly, even know who Evo Morales is? Now, that's not, I'm not... That's not a good thing that they don't know who he is, but they don't know who he is. Americans don't know who Evo Morales is. So if you think you're going to go out there and, like, fearmonger about, oh, my God, he's supporting Evo Morales? Oh, Evo Morales? 
Nobody's reaction is going to be like that. Nobody's angry. Bernie's default position when it comes to foreign policy is, hey, let's mind our business and let's not mess with other people. People agree with that position. It doesn't matter how much you try to fearmonger about it or muck up anger about it. It's not going to happen. But Chuck Todd is such a freaking oatmeal brain that he doesn't understand that this isn't some sort of devastating political attack. He's presenting it to Bernie. He's like, hey, man, I know what the Republicans are going to say, and you're going to have no response to it. Here's what they're going to say. Oh, my God, he supports all these socialist dictators around the world. And that's also not true. Evo Morales was a social democrat. And when you get into the specifics of what happened uh, in Bolivia, it was literally an illegal coup. And that's what Bernie's saying. I don't like illegal coups. Very simple, very straightforward. So I think Bernie's going to win that debate. Bernie knows more about the situation in that country than Trump or the Republicans ever will and ever do. Um, So, yeah, good luck. Come at us with that stuff. This is just another variation on the same attack that they've recycled a thousand times that doesn't land at all. Namely, oh, my God, socialism. Oh, my God, communism. Oh, my God, he, like, agrees with, like, the Soviet Union and, like, Cuba and, like, dictators around the world. And, by the way, Bernie goes on to say, you're talking about a guy, Donald Trump, who has, like, repeatedly heaped praise on Kim Jong-un. So the argument against me is going to be, oh, Bernie Sanders loves dictators. (laughs) Good luck. Good luck making that argument. We'll see how far it gets. But, again, the thing that annoys me to no end is that Chuck Todd really thinks, like, oh, Bernie will get obliterated in this because they're going to say Evo Morales. What a child, man. He doesn't know anything. What Chuck Todd just accepts whatever the conventional wisdom is completely. And he actually believes it. He's like, oh, the conventional wisdom is obviously correct about everything. So, Bernie, what are you going to do when they say this? And Bernie's like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard, bro. I don't like illegal coups. I think my position makes a hell of a lot more sense. It really is sad. I don't... The people who have made it in corporate media really are some of the dumbest people on the, in the plan, on the planet. And it's like, but that's on purpose. They do that on purpose because the moneyed interests want people front and center who will defend their worldview. And their worldview is really stupid. Their worldview is that like, hey, the moneyed interests are the smartest people in the room. And the way the system works is perfect because we're in control of it. And so that's why you get the Wolf Litchers and the Chuck Todds and all these idiots in control. It's really sad. But what I love is Bernie's scorn for them. He's like, what, the f- what are you talking about? What are you talking about? Really? You think that's a good political attack? No, I don't like illegal coups. You do? Get them, Dad. All right, Michael Bloomberg. So we have some new ad money numbers released, and um, 
the update on Michael Bloomberg is just out of this world. Bloomberg has spent a total of $351 million. $351 million on his campaign in ads. I'm seeing Bloomberg ads all of the time here in New York. The one that I saw last night really got under my skin. It was Michael Bloomberg basically trying to pretend that Barack Obama endorsed him. Now, Barack Obama didn't endorse him. He didn't endorse anybody. But that didn't stop Michael Bloomberg from functionally lying, effectively lying in the campaign ad to make it look like Obama supports him. Now, is it possible Obama would support Bloomberg? Yes, but he hasn't announced support, and Bloomberg is running that ad. Really gross, really disingenuous, the kind of cheap tactics and tricks that you would expect from a loathsome character like Michael Bloomberg. And now you know the extent of his ad buys. Recently when we spoke about it, it was, I think, $200 million that he spent on ads. Now we're at $351 million. Last time we spoke about it wasn't that long ago, the $200 million. He's basically doubled the spending since then. Tom Steyer sires, $178 million. By the way, actually the last time it said $200 million, so I don't know how that number went down. But either way, a lot of that is being focused in um, South Carolina. So he's doing well in the polls in South Carolina because of the ads. So the ads are relatively effective. They're relatively effective. But what we're seeing here, as I've said a thousand times, is this is a case study in just how far money alone can get you in politics. Because Michael Bloomberg has the personality of watching paint dry. He's got an ideology that's deeply unpopular when you go issue for issue. Um, And he has basically bought his way to third place in the polls. And it's all through these ads. There's another impact of this, guys, and this one is not being stressed enough. What Michael Bloomberg is doing here, on top of you know, just getting the ads out there and, and raising his profile, he's also effectively buying loyalty from media outlets. Because who are the beneficiaries of this ad money? It's the media outlets. So now we're getting to a point where Bloomberg is spending so much money that he's like propping up many local news outlets because he's just pumping them with ad money and making them wealthy. So you have another problem. You have this like pay-to-play problem, this corruption problem that goes hand-in-hand with him spending $351 million on ads. You're going to get a media that's really not hostile to him. That's really not going to do any investigative reporting. That's really not going to even tell you what his basic positions are that are the unpopular positions. They're not going to do that because he has effectively bought their loyalty, both at the national level and definitely at the local level as well. I do not know how this is allowed. So if you're a billionaire, you could just spend all your money, and he's not going to get anywhere near all of his money. I think he has something like $40 billion, but, but he can just basically try to buy a presidential race. And that's fine. That's allowable. That's okay. Working people mess around and buy a new pair of pants. Millionaires mess around and buy a new car. Billionaires mess around and buy a political party and try to buy an election, buy a country. We're watching that happen in real time. I don't know why this isn't a bigger story. Well, I do. I just told you. 
because the same people who would who would supposed who are supposed to cover this are the same people who are the beneficiaries of this ad money. So they're gonna they're not gonna go after him hard because he's making them rich. There's another thing he's doing now. Get this: he's buying influencers too. He's buying influencers. So he's like getting like YouTubers and Instagram folks on his side. Any YouTuber who starts saying positive things about Mike Bloomberg, you will feel my wrath. Because you guys are the scum of the earth, as low as you could possibly get. Buying allegiance to this absolutely terrible candidate. And make no mistake about it, he is a terrible candidate. We've gone through his record a hundred times, and I'll go through him a million more. Video emerged to him the other day, arguing in favor of TPP very recently. This guy you think is going to have any chance against Trump? Trump will destroy him. He argued for TPP. He vetoed a minimum wage increase as mayor of New York City. He banned big gulps. This is what he's known for. This is what he's known for. He wants to control your life and stop you from getting a raise. In 2004, he endorsed Bush at the Republican National Convention. Bush, after four years of Bush, Mike Bloomberg said, yeah, let's go with Bush. He's trying to buy an election. And I'll be damned if he didn't get his, buy his way all the way to third place already. Some betting market, the betting markets actually have him just below Bernie. So Bernie's the favorite to win the whole thing. Bloomberg is below him. Leapfrog Biden, leapfrog Pete. This is where we're at. This is the power of money. Mike Bloomberg is buying friends and buying allegiance. And he is like literally a parody. He's a caricature of, you know, a, a weak candidate that Trump could beat up on. Trump will have a field day with this loser. So just understand that. We got to get Bernie elected. He's our only hope to be Trump. Okay, next. Joe Biden time. Joe Biden released an ad going after Mayor Pete. Now, he did this because Mayor Pete kind of took his spot at the moment as the leading centrist candidate. This is a pretty incredible ad. Watch. Both Vice President Biden and former Mayor Pete have helped shape 
our economy. Joe Biden helped save the auto industry, which revitalized the economy of the Midwest and led the passage and implementation of the recovery, saving our economy from a depression. Pete Buttigieg revitalized the sidewalks of downtown South Bend by laying out decorative bricks. And both Biden and Buttigieg have made hard decisions. Despite pressure from the NRA, Joe Biden passed the assault weapons ban through Congress. Then, he passed the Violence Against Women Act. And even when public pressure mounted against him, former Mayor Pete fired the first African-American police chief of South Bend. And then he forced out the African-American fire chief, too. We're electing a president. What you've done matters. I'm no fan of Joe Biden, but that was a very good ad. That was a very good ad. Now, understand, the timing is, of course, you know, very important here because Pete leapfrogged Biden as, like, the leading centrist candidate in Iowa. Uh, Biden is struggling in New Hampshire in the polls, too, really badly. He's going to finish in, like, fourth or fifth there. So um, as somebody somebody who pointed this out, I'm not sure if it's true, but they said – no Democratic presidential candidate has not won Iowa or New Hampshire and gone on to win the primary. And Biden is going to get obliterated in Iowa and obliterated in New Hampshire. So basically, and this also shows, by the way, it's not that, you know, he's going soft on Bernie. It's that he doesn't, he, even at this late date, his establishment insider staffers don't think Bernie is the real threat. Even at this late date, they don't think Bernie is the real threat, even though he's a giant frontrunner according to the betting markets, according to every objective analysis. So, but that's why they're going after Pete, because they think, oh, he's the real threat now, because he want, or he, God forbid, I almost repeated their propaganda. He's, um, through trickery and deceit, trying to get to a place where he won Iowa, even though Bernie won 6,000 more votes out of 1,800 people participating in the caucus. Um, so they think, oh my God, Pete's the real threat. And Biden knows he's in my lane. So he's trying to take him down and hurt him in New Hampshire so that moving forward, he's not a big threat. Now, the, the case of Pete is actually very interesting because, you know, he put all of his energy and his effort into the first two states. And then he's trying to use that as a springboard effect. And... But his problem is he's still polling, depending on what poll you look at, 2% or less with black people, which means he's got no hope on Super Tuesday, none. Um, And he didn't have any offices in California. Now, I think they've just now expanded, but this is, you know, this is JoJo too little too late all day long. So, but he was depending heavily on Iowa and New Hampshire to get that springboard effect. And even with that springboard effect, it might not be enough. So... What's interesting is you have all the centrist candidates really shooting each other in the foot and leaving a lane for Bernie. So when we had the debate the other night, Bernie did a really good job, but also Klobuchar did a good job, and she did a number on Pete and beat him up. And now some daily tracking polls in New Hampshire are showing that Klobuchar had like a five- or six-point bump and took from Mayor Pete. So they keep going at it with each other, the centrists, and Bernie keeps staying solid. And what Biden's trying to do here is make sure that
that, okay, whatever happens in New Hampshire, I'm trying to take you down a little bit in New Hampshire, but also moving forward, he wants to protect his Super Tuesday position. But see, the problem for Biden is, bro, if you get, if you get wrecked in New Hampshire, as you're going to do, and then you get wrecked in Nevada? Taking three giant L's, man, you're on the rope, son. And this goes back to a prediction that I made about Joe Biden. Remember, I was saying early on, the second he starts talking, he's going to tank in the polls. Turns out I was wrong, but I was also right, because my theory was what? Default support. Joe Biden has what I call default support. Namely, when you're doing a poll and you call some 65-year-old person sitting in their living room, the only people with landlines still left in the country, and they answer the phone, who do you support? I don't know who's running. Biden's running? Yeah, sure, I support Biden. That's the level of support. There's no enthusiasm there for Joe Biden. He's the default guy. Oh, he was the VP, and he's running again. Okay, so yeah, I guess Biden. I don't really know who else is in the race. I guess Biden. That's default support. What I was wrong about is I thought that the default support would immediately collapse in the polls when he announced his candidacy, and within you know like a month, he would be down in second, third, fourth place and fall. Turns out that didn't happen. It didn't reflect in the polls. The the dissent didn't reflect in the polls. The polls still showed relatively solid support, but it showed up on election day. It showed up in Iowa. It's going to show up in New Hampshire, the default support problem that he has, the lack of enthusiasm, the fact that they're not real Biden supporters. They're just people who say on the phone, yeah, I guess I support Biden. They're not actually going to go vote for him. So it's interesting because my theory of default support is correct, but I was wrong about how it showed itself. I thought it would show itself in the polls immediately. It didn't. The polls still showed himself, still showed him with a strong support. And then come election day is when the mask was ripped off. So, but he's panicking now. Biden is panicking. And they should be panicking because you can't get your ass handed to you in the first three or four states and then just expect to what? Sweep Super Tuesday? That's not going to happen. So, and right now the strongest position is Bernie because competitive in Iowa, New Hampshire, and then also killing it with the Latino community, man. Killing it with the Latino community. That's going to help in Nevada. That's going to help in California. He's leading in a bunch of polls coming out of California. So he's the guy to beat right now and let the others fight amongst themselves. Okay, let's take a break. When I come back, I'm not done with Biden. Wait until you hear what he said on the campaign trail. You're going to be absolutely shocked. And then we're going to go to Ben Shapiro. And uh, Fox News dove headfirst into some military-industrial complex propaganda. So stay right there. We'll be right back with all of that and much, much more.
right, I'm back, y'all. Welcome back, Potter. All right, I got more Jill Biden for you. And this this is uh, this is a special one. It's one of my favorites. One of my favorite Joe Biden stories of all time. That's a bold statement, but it's also an accurate statement. <clears throat> Joe Biden is adding to his list of most awkward, greatest hits on the campaign trail. Here he is uh, answering questions in New Hampshire. <clears throat> You're a lying, dog-faced pony soldier. A lying, dog-faced pony soldier. (laughs) And after that, he said, I got to be honest with you now. Is that the honesty? The honesty is that she's a lying, dog-faced pony soldier? Bro, what are you doing? Like, what are you doing? (laughs) There's been a thousand articles written about how mean Bernie bros are online. And Joe Biden himself goes out there and calls a woman who asked the question a lying dog-faced pony soldier. And nobody in mainstream media is going to cover this and be like, man, that was, uh, that's not good. You probably shouldn't call women lying dog-faced pony soldiers. It's just so, like, what popped in your mind? Maybe that's a reference to, like, an old movie or something, but, I mean, he has to know that we don't know whatever kind of reference he's trying to make, right? Like, there's no way people know whatever the hell it is, the Abbott and Costello skit (laughs) that you're referencing. I made that up. I have no idea if that's actually in an Abbott and Costello skit. But, yeah, that's, uh, that's, uh, this is now classic Joe Biden. This is what he does. Like, he'll just drop some shit like this at some point, or he'll, like, you know, sniff a a 12-year-old girl's hair or some shit, and it's... Remember, there was one recently also that was, that creeped people out, where he was, like, um... He started, like, repeating the same thing over and over and going at somebody fast, and everybody's like, whoa, 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 what are you doing, bro? Or remember when he did, uh... All right, look fat. (laughs) A guy asked him a question, and he starts his response by, look fat. I do have to say, though, um, somebody tweeted a thread and, like, put what Biden was saying in the thread. And as I was reading it, I was like, first of all, that could be a joke. That might, that's probably not real. That was my first thought. And then when I saw the video, I saw it, it, it indeed was real. But funny enough, my reaction wasn't, like, outraged. I was more like, oh, that wasn't as bad in person as it was, like, written down in the tweet thread. And that, I feel like that verifies something. I've heard Joe Rogan make this point before, and I definitely think it's true now. I didn't really have a position on it before. But if you, ta- if you write something down and put it in quotes, it makes it seem worse than what it really is. Because I feel like tone is such a big 
you know, part of communication. Intent and, and like, how you're speaking is such a, a big part of communication. Um, and when you write something down, you, you know, take away the intent and the tone. You can make it seem like something it's not. Now, this is not me defending Joe Biden, saying, you know, you're a lying dog-faced pony soldier. <laughs> I'm not defending that. But um, it definitely didn't look like it was malicious in how he did it. It looked like it was, you know, in the same way that I would make an offhand reference and, you know, joke around about something. It seems like he's slightly tongue-in-cheek and messing around. Still, don't call women lying dog-faced pony soldiers, but I don't think it's as big of a deal as people are making it out to be. Um, I just find it funny. I just find it funny. And... There's plenty to go after in Joe Biden's records that we could focus on. We don't have to go to the lying dog-faced pony soldier. But it does, it does show that um, he's one of those people where, like, when the pressure's on and when he has to perform, he folds. That's what, that's what this shows me. It's just like his political instincts are not there right now. Like, your political instincts should kick in in a situation like this, and you should realize, like, I probably shouldn't say this, but his are just gone. He has no political instincts anymore. Um, but to be fair, he never really did because he ran for president multiple times before and got his ass handed to him. People don't even remember in 2008, he ran in the same election as Obama and he did terribly. He did terribly. Um, and, you know, Obama picked him because he's got the whole like I'm the white working class vibe to him. So Obama wanted to, you know, make the ticket more like white male for fear that he didn't want to alienate, like, the working-class white people. So that's why he picked Biden. But Biden did terrible in the election before Obama picked him as VP. A lot of people don't remember that, don't know that. A lot of you guys are too young to have any memory of the 2008 election. Um, But that's what happened. And then also in 1988, we covered how he ended up dropping out in that election, which was a mess. So um, his political instincts were just non-existent. After you get your ass handed to you in Iowa, now you're out there, casually calling a female voter a lying dog-faced pony soldier, which I'm convinced has to be a reference to something that we haven't seen, but that's the point, is nobody knows the reference. So it just seems like you're calling a woman a lying dog face. (laughs) Pony soldier. Yeah, really weird, um, but also kind of funny. Okay, next. Ben Shapiro, or as I uh, lovingly refer to him, squeaky Ben Shapiro, uh, he went after Bernie Sanders in what is quite possibly one of the most hyperbolic and stupid ways possible. Take a look. The idea is, on, the, on, on behalf of folks on the left, that government is capable of achieving these outcomes. Government is not capable of achieving equality of, of outcome. It's just not. LBJ tried this in the mid-60s. He ended up with the greatest growth of government in the history of the United States, and he didn't end up lowering poverty in the United States. The percentage of people living below the poverty line right now is effectively the same as it was since the beginning of the 70s. That's not true. So the, the notion that Bernie Sanders is going to come along with government and that he's going to fix all problems, basically his plan goes like this. Declare that socialism is, insert thing you want, 
question mark, utopia. That's Bernie Sanders' program. And here's the thing. Once you have to fill in those gaps, as it turns out, to achieve equality of outcome, what you usually have to do is kill a few people. That's what communism does. Because in order to achieve equality of outcome, we're going to have to seize the property of a few people. If they don't like it, then we're going to have to imprison them. We're going to have to restrict them from moving. We're going to have to crack down on individual rights. We're going to have to redistribute everything. Eventually, what we're really going to need to do is just collectivize the ownership, make it government-owned so we can redistribute the proceeds. We're going to need to do that at the very least. And that ends up pretty ugly. And this is why when Elizabeth Warren tried to fill in the gap on Bernie Sanders, on even basic things that he's proposing, like Medicare for All, she got destroyed. Because Bernie will say Medicare for All, and people will say, so what's your plan for this, and what does it look like? And Bernie will just say things like, well, it will cost you us. Well, no, it won't. But he doesn't ever actually roll out his plan. Right? He'll just promise you the moon, and then when you think, how are you going to get to the moon? And he just refuses to answer the question, and this is a sign of genius. Okay. Uh, there's so much there. I I don't even know where to begin with this because that was just like a tsunami of BS. <laughs> okay, so um, to the final, let's start at the end and then work backwards. He says, um, you know, well, Bernie says Medicare for all will cost less. Well, no, it won't. Except it will, and that's not me speaking, that's the Political and Economic Research Institute at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, which did a detailed study on this, and they found to give the exact number over a 10-year period, Medicare for All will save $5.1 trillion. You want to know why? You get rid of the unnecessary, rapacious, for-profit middleman. You get rid of it. You get rid of the mafia that's shaking you down. So again, if Ben Shapiro wants to disagree with that, fine. Go ahead and disagree with that. You're wrong. You're wrong. Go, but go ahead and disagree with it. But just know you're not disagreeing with Kyle Kalinske. You're not disagreeing with Bernie Sanders. You're disagreeing with a detailed study from the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Now, I'm sure he still will disagree with that. But okay, let's be clear about who exactly you're disagreeing with. Because this is, I'm talking studies and facts and numbers. And he's talking, you know, right-wing cliches and platitudes and things that they believe based on no evidence at all. So let's just be on the record about all that. Okay, that's the first thing. Um, he also said, well, Warren got destroyed when she was trying to fill in the details on Medicare for All. No, Warren got destroyed when she backed off of Medicare for All. And then the real nail in her coffin was accusing the most progressive senator of our lifetimes of being a sexist. So that's when Warren got destroyed, when she started backing off these left-wing proposals. So he's just flat out misstating what the empirical reality is. Um, to fit his ideology. He's working backwards from his conclusion. And then at one point he says, well, you know, at some point Bernie Sanders is going to say we have to collectivize the ownership and give it to the government. Except that's a total misstatement of what Bernie's policies are and what his beliefs are, and Bernie's not hiding it. He's laid it all out there. You don't need to, like, let me, Ben Shapiro, fill in the gaps for you. There's no gaps. He's open about all of it. So... One of his proposals involves something called worker-owned co-ops. Now, worker-owned co-ops are not, oh, let's collectivize the ownership and give it to the government, give it to the state. No. Worker-owned co-ops are democratize the workplace. So let's say you work at a company with 100 uh, people, mid-sized company. Well, instead of having one owner, one CEO, one boss, a rigid hierarchy – 
Bernie wants to incentivize, not mandate, not mandate, but incentivize democracy in the workplace. So now 100 people are all the boss. You are your own boss. And then whenever you make a decision, all of you get together and you vote on it. That's all he's talking about. Now, again, Ben, do you want to disagree with that philosophy? I'm sure you do. Please, by all means, go right ahead and do it. But be honest about what he believes. He's not talking about some sort of statist version of leftism. He's not talking about let's collectivize it and then give it over to the state, which I'm sure Ben is trying to straw man as like the DM, the DMV running like every industry or some shit. Like, stop straw manning your opponents. I know you don't like Bernie Sanders. I know you don't agree with Bernie Sanders. But let's be accurate about what he actually believes. And then if you want to disagree with him, by all means, you could disagree with him. But I get the sense that you can't accurately talk about his beliefs because you don't know what they are. But also, you don't have substantive rebuttals to that. You don't know about the different strands, different flavors, different varieties of leftism. You don't understand that there's massive distinctions and nuanced differences between the different schools of thought, and everything hinges on those differences. It's the difference between having an authoritarian-like system and a libertarian-like system, one that embraces freedom and liberty and one that doesn't embrace freedom and liberty. Market socialism versus non-market, status versions of socialism. He doesn't know what he's talking about. This guy's like the right intellectual, but he's not an intellectual. He's just wrong about the stuff he's saying. Um, and you know he conflates it all because what did he say? Oh, usually in order to get what Bernie's talking about, you have to kill a few people. So look at the jump. Look at the jump. We're talking about banal social democracy. That's what Bernie believes in, banal social democracy, carrying on the legacy of FDR. Ben Shapiro makes the jump to it's communism, and you have to kill a few people to get there. He never said that. You said that. Bernie Sanders is one of the people running for office who wants to end the wars, and he believes in freedom of speech. He argued for Ann Coulter to be able to speak at a college when there were riots against her. He believes in free speech. He wants to end the wars. His proposals would save lives, and you're strawmanning him as, well, you've got to kill a few people to get what he wants. No, Ben, you have to kill a few people to get what you want. You are one of the biggest cheerleaders of the Iraq war. So you have blood on your hands. He doesn't have blood on his hands. He was against it every step of the way. So spare me your hyperbolic, over-the-top nonsense about, oh, he's, you're going to have to kill a few people to get what he wants. No, apparently you and your neoconservative ideology, you have to kill people to get what you want. God, he's such a slimy weasel, and he says things that are so silly. Um, he also strawmans Bernie and says, well, Bernie says he'll fix all problems with government. No, he doesn't. He never said all problems get fixed with government. This is your strawman of him, and I'm stunned that... Like, there's anybody who can't see through this. Anybody who's being remotely honest about this and takes off the partisan blinders is going to go, oh, yeah, he, that's, Bernie didn't say that. Um, and then finally, he, bring, he keeps bringing up equality of outcome, equality of outcome. Well, government can't achieve equality of outcome. That's great. Nobody is arguing for equality of outcome. Nobody. I've never – I've been in left circles my whole adult life. I've never heard anybody argue for equality of outcome. Again, this is the right-wing straw man of what the left believes. Like, oh, people on the left just want a janitor who works part-time to make the exact same amount of money as the CEO. Nobody said that. Nobody said that. Uh, and then finally, he talks about how, well, government is ill-equipped to deal with these massive problems. And, you know, uh, when they did the war on poverty, well, you had the same, uh, effectively the same poverty rate before and after, so you know it didn't work, except that's not true. The war on poverty cuts the poverty rate from about 26% to 16%. Now, you could say, hey, there's still 16, it's still a high poverty rate, true, but 
it's incorrect to say that there was no impact of anti-poverty programs. Anti-poverty programs redistribute, so by definition, they're helping to fix the problem. No further analysis needed. If you, somebody's poor and you walk up to them, and let's just use the Andrew Yang example because everybody gets it when you talk about it like that. Let's say we had a universal basic income, Social Security for all, and you give a poor person 1000 extra dollars a month. Guess what? They are, by definition, less poor. So when you say, oh, there was no effect on it with the anti-poverty program, that is not true, and that's comically incorrect. He, he, again, he always works backwards from his conclusion. Whatever he believes, he'll square peg, round hole it all day. He'll never just be, yeah, you know what, I concede on that. He never does that. He never does that. I am more than willing to concede when somebody I disagree with makes a decent point. I, I have no problem doing that. I have no, my ego has no stake in this. I'm not, my position is not, everything that's on the left is by definition correct every time, no matter what, and I will always defend that no matter what. I don't think like that, because I'm not a child. But him, he does it with, uh, everything on the right is correct no matter what, and every talking point ever on the right is accurate. Dude, final thing, to further prove he's incorrect, oh my God, the government's ill-equipped to deal with this stuff. Social Security. Did you know, prior to Social Security, about 50% of seniors in this country we're living in poverty. You want to know what that number is now? Actually, I say now, but the statistics that I got on this were they had the year 2000, but it's about the same today. Prior to Social Security, half of seniors living in poverty. Uh, now it's about 10%. Went from 50%, half in poverty, to 10% in poverty. Government programs work. Now, does that mean all government programs work and they're all equally amazing? No. Because, again, I'm not like Ben Shapiro. We're not like Ben Shapiro. I don't make my mind up about something and then defend it no matter what, no matter what the evidence says. No. If you show me evidence of certain government programs or certain regulations not working, great. Let's have that conversation. Show me the evidence. Let's take a look at it. You could very well be right. It's certainly possible. But what Ben Shapiro does is the exact opposite. And you just saw it. Everything's a broad, sweeping, generalized statement. Everything's a straw man of, you know, what Bernie Sanders believes and what leftists believe. And uh, listen, all I can say is this. If you're somebody who has been a fan of Ben Shapiro in the, in the past or you are right now, you can grow. You can evolve. You don't have to be perpetually wrong. You, you know, he might, he might make you feel good because he's so confident when he talks or whatever the hell it is, or he talks fast, so therefore you think he must be smart. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a silly analysis. And there is an off-ramp, and I'm offering you that off-ramp. So you can get off. <laughs> you can do it. You can get off. That sounds weirdly sexual. <laughs> you, can get, you can get off this road of silliness, which is exactly where his commentary takes you. So I'm just, I'm just letting everybody know. There's a reason I'm covering this. I'm covering this because, you know, the hyperbolic anti-Bernie coverage is just so ridiculous. And this is coming from I don't agree with Bernie on everything. I have strong disagreements with him. You know, uh, you know maybe we don't talk about them all that much because – the issues where I disagree with them don't come up all that much, but when it comes to, you know, legalizing taxing and regulating sex work, at the very least decriminalizing all drugs or really legalize taxing and regulating all drugs, these are areas I disagree with Bernie. I agree with Yang and disagree with Bernie on UBI. Bernie believes in a federal jobs guarantee. Yang believes in UBI. I'm more in the Yang camp on that front. I have disagreements with him, but it doesn't really, they don't come up that much because we're still stuck at this bare level analysis where you get clowns and fools trying to disagree with them and straw manning him nonstop. And that's exactly what this clip represents.
Okay, next. Fox News dove headfirst into some military-industrial complex propaganda. And, um, I mean, what they end up doing here is downplaying the deaths of two U.S. soldiers in Afghanistan. More insight on the attack of national security and foreign policy vice president at the Heritage Foundation, Lieutenant Colonel James Carfano. Thank you so much for joining us. It's great to see you in person. In the morning, we talk a lot over satellite. Uh, In reference to the latest attack, let's begin there. We have two more U.S. service members killed in Afghanistan. We've been talking about getting them out. Uh, This is being described as an insider attack at this point. We know that it involved two uh, U.S. Army members from the 7th Special Forces Group, also known as the Green Berets. So here's what's really interesting about that. A few years ago, this is actually quite common. We call it blue on blue. So friendly forces, Afghan American forces or other allied forces winding up shooting at each other, whether it was engineered or whatever, mostly by the Taliban. But then a couple of things happened. One is, we all got much better at dealing with this, adapting procedures to limit this kind of, of, of stuff. Two, the Afghan military actually got much, much more professional. So we see less uniforms loose, less people running around. And the third one is, is um, Americans are, are doing less combat. We're in an advise and support role. We're not fighting as much as we used to, uh, and, and our numbers are much, much smaller. So this is actually kind of an anomaly as opposed to business as usual in Afghanistan. Yeah. An anomaly, but at the same time, it has still happened, and we have two service members dead as a result of it. And apparently, from what I understand, and you can explain this to me a little bit more, uh, the U.S. military is not officially calling it an insider attack because although the suspect did have on an Afghan uniform, he was not involved in this direct mission that was taking place. And, and that's, again, something that we've seen before. It used to be actually fairly prevalent. You would get an Afghan uniform, put it on, and then just show up, and people think, oh, you're an Afghan, but you're really a Taliban fighter. The other scenario is you would get a Taliban fighter and get them into the Afghan military and have them attack people, or you would bribe or, or, or uh, you'd somehow get a Taliban soldier to do this. So we know about these things, so we do vetting, we do coordination, so they're, they're much, much less prevalent. And we also know in this particular province, in this area, there is a small home of, of ISIS fighters, about 500 or so located there, so we, we still don't know at this point who's claiming responsibility for the attack. Yeah, and this is, like, really crucial. Yeah. Why are the Taliban at the, at the negotiating table? Because they know they can't win. Mm-hmm. ISIS cannot win. As long as we are there and backing up the Afghan military, who's doing all of the fighting, they are building a future for their country, and the other side can't win. That's why oftentimes we see these incidents, sometimes engineered, because what they would like to do is, oh, look, the wars in Willowville, America should just turn it back and leave. That's exactly the wrong message. Well, that leads me into my next question, because uh, NATO, of course, now considering uh, leaving Afghanistan at the same time, we know that President Trump has promised to remove our troops from there, and we heard trading talking about the latest numbers, about 13,000 or so still there, but you think that we should stay there? Well, I think one is NATO will leave when we leave. We're going to go in. We went in together. We'll come out together. This administration has already made a decision. It's going to go to about a little less than 9,000 troops. That's about the right number to sustain advice and assist missions and do counterterrorism. It's the number that was there when the president came in office. They've already made that decision, and they've already decided that regardless of how the peace talks come out, those troops will stay there until the Taliban have actually proven that the levels of violence have gone down and that the country is stable. So, in a sense, the decisions are already cooked. The president's already made the right choice. Um, and I, 
as tragic as incidents like they are, they won't take the prisoner. Oh, our prayers is as tragic as it is, it's not going to take the president off its course. So you could have U.S. soldiers dying every day, and it, quote, won't take the U.S. president off his course. Guys, this is what we learned about Afghanistan in the recent um, Afghanistan papers that came out about how the government lied to us every step of the way. We learned that no matter what's happening on the ground, they use that as further evidence that we need to stay there indefinitely. So in other words, if there were no terrorist attacks on the ground happening in Afghanistan, the U.S. government would come out and say, oh, well, that's obvious proof that what we're doing is working. So we need to stay there to stay on this path to make sure that there's no increase in violence. That's what they'd say. Now, if the exact opposite scenario were true, and there are a lot of terrorist attacks on the ground, they come out there and say, oh, well, I mean, obviously we need to stay to reduce the number of terror attacks and fight back, obviously. So think about it. It becomes a non-falsifiable claim because anything that happens, they then turn around and use it as evidence for us staying there indefinitely. So, guys, this is a 19-year-old war. Nobody in the government even bothers to define what victory is anymore, what victory means. When was the last time you heard them come out and say, oh, after X, Y, and Z happens, then we're, then we're out? They haven't even tried that in years. So now you're leaving it up to everybody else to speculate why it is that we're still there. And, you know, we know that Saudi Arabia, for example had a hand in the 9-11 attacks, and 15 or 16 of the 19 hijackers were from Saudi Arabia. We haven't done anything to push back in Saudi Arabia. We're closer with them today than we ever, we've ever been. So it's not about terrorism. There's no uh, you know, planning of imminent attacks happening in Afghanistan against uh, the U.S. So what is it? Well, you know, there are, uh, there are trillions of dollars worth of mineral wealth in Afghanistan, trillions of dollars. And, and that, you know, a lot of that stuff is used to make cell phones, for example, so that, I'm sure that has something to do with it. I'm sure the other thing is the military-industrial complex. And that might sound conspiratorial, but it's really not. All that means is war is a very profitable business for that industry in the United States. And we have jobs tied to the military-industrial complex in all 50 states. So in this country, our welfare is warfare. The more war we do, the more we sell weapons to, to rogue regimes that are dictatorial, the more money's made. And you have a certain subset of people making a lot of money. You have, you know, Raytheon, Boeing, Honeywell, all these defense contractors. They get really wealthy off of war. And that explains why we're there for 19 years and there's no sign of leaving. They said, oh, he's going to keep at least 9,000 troops there. So what is it, 12 or 13,000 now? He's going to take it to 9,000. And what? Then what? Trump is going to pretend like that's a withdrawal. That's not a withdrawal. That's nowhere near a withdrawal. 9,000 is a lot of troops, and we still get situations like we just saw where there's an attack against U.S. soldiers. You know how you save American lives? You get out. You get out. They can't kill us if we're not there. That's not going to happen. And I haven't even brought up, in the case of Iraq and Afghanistan, the countless civilian deaths. Did you guys know that in Afghanistan we allied ourselves with warlords? And in many instances, these warlords are worse than the Taliban. And I'm serious when I say that. 
there was a detailed story that came out years ago about how you had U.S. soldiers blowing the whistle on warlords who are our allies who were arming and funding because we found out they have child sex slaves. There was a U.S. soldier who spoke to one of these warlords, and they had a kid chained to the bed. And when that soldier tried to blow the whistle on that warlord, he was discharged from the military. So the whole idea, the whole notion of, oh, my God, we have to stay there to you know, fight terrorism and protect the civilians. Well, if you're aligning yourselves with the monsters who have child sex slaves, you're not protecting civilians. Quite the opposite. You're giving monsters more money and more power. So you're hurting the civilians. Also, remember the, the uh, Kunduz hospital bombing? We bombed a hospital and killed countless civilians. So what are we doing there? We're actively making it worse in many instances. And we're going to turn around and say, oh, we have to stay there to protect the civilians or whatever. Utter nonsense. It's not true. And I haven't even brought up the obvious argument, you know, the elephant sitting in the room, which is something Tulsi Gabbard brings up all the time, which is, guys, we wasted $7 trillion in Iraq by 2053, $2 trillion in Afghanistan. That's $9 trillion total. And we don't even have clean water in Flint, Michigan. Our infrastructure gets a grade of D+. Our airports are crap. Our roads are crumbling. We haven't really seriously updated our infrastructure in a really long time. And we just have endless amounts of money to waste overseas in these wars. Never mind the fact that many of them are illegal and offensive in nature. So not only is it vicious and criminal and immoral, it's also just stupid. It's stupid. And now you have two consecutive presidents in part running on ending some of these wars, and they're increasing them. They're increasing them. So whoever voted for Trump thinking, oh, well, I want him to get out of the wars, and then he does the opposite, now you know you can't vote for him in 2020. There are a few candidates on the Democratic side who will actually end the wars, and one of them happens to be the front runner. So maybe, you know, change your support. But listen, that's a Heritage Foundation, that's a right-wing think tank guy. Right after two U.S. Green Berets were killed, he goes on Fox News, and the whole point of him being there is to do propaganda and say, oh, this changes nothing, and we're going to stay there. Just so you know, a poll came out in 2013. This is an old poll now, but it's the most recent one I saw on this issue. And a a whopping 17% of Americans still wanted to be in the war in Afghanistan. The war in Afghanistan was more unpopular than Vietnam. Think about that. If I was a Democrat running for president, I would bring this up all the time, and I would say, you know, one of the first things I do, uh, I think Bernie said that in his first term he will end these wars, but if I was Bernie, I would say, just like he did with marijuana, he said on day one, I'll legalize it in all 50 states. I would say the same thing, on day one, I'll begin our withdrawal from Iraq and Afghanistan. Okay. All right, let's talk about Andrew Yang. Let's talk about Andrew Yang. So we have some news about the Andrew Yang campaign to report on. This is in Politico. They say the following. 
Andrew Yang's campaign fired dozens of staffers this week after an abysmal finish in the Iowa caucuses, according to four former staffers who were let go. Among those dismissed were the national political and policy directors of the campaign, as well as the deputy national political director, all senior-level positions. The people who were fired worked across Yang's organization, from his headquarters in New York to the now-disabled Iowa operation. Uh, The Yang campaign insists it had planned to reduce the size of his organization after Iowa. The official wouldn't specify the number of people who were fired, but the fired staffers said it was in the dozens. According to FEC reports released last week, the Yang campaign had more than 230 people on staff. So um, the reason why this is noteworthy is not the fact that he's firing some people in and of itself, because that happens after, you know, we just had Iowa, now we're moving past Iowa. So, yes, you downsize a little bit. That does make sense. Um, I mean, I guess there's also an argument for the opposite. Hey, after Iowa, now if you finished high – you need more staff to go into future states that they have no, you know, um, no boots on the ground yet. They have no organization on the ground yet. So there's an argument for downsizing. There's also an argument for doing the opposite and expanding further. Um, Pete is now trying. He had zero offices in California. And now after Iowa, I think he's now opening some offices and trying to get some ground game in California. Um, But Yang and his team are downplaying this a little bit and uh, saying, no, you're reading too much into it. But the thing that there's no way around, in my opinion, is that these are national political and policy directors of the campaign, national political and policy directors of the campaign, and the deputy national political director. These are senior-level positions. This isn't just like, oh, it's just Iowa, just some Iowa folks. So um, this is a sign regardless of what he says outwardly right now, and obviously he's not going to say it because we're about to, he's about to compete in New Hampshire, um, but this is a sign that he sees the writing on the wall, and he's like, I'm going to have to drop out soon. And um, there's nothing, like, what I want to say to the Yang supporters is this. There's no shame in, in Yang um, eventually dropping out because – he outperformed so many people who are establishment figures and who got a significant media bump. Yang came this far with an actively hostile media towards him. You know, you had, he outlasted Kamala Harris and Beto O'Rourke, two people who, the, you know, the political geniuses over 538, Nate Silver was like, oh, these are like one and two is like Kamala Harris and Beto. Yang outlasted them. So he deserves nothing but credit for being an outsider, anti-establishment voice who came this far. And this is the, this is the era now of the populist, anti-establishment outsiders because people know the system is broken and they hate it. And, um, you know, when Yang drops out, I think he's going to endorse Bernie. And I think that many of his supporters actually will vote for Bernie um, because, you know, the, the people who support Yang's campaign, many of them, you have to speak to each individual one on a case-by-case basis and see exactly why it is that they support him. But, you know, I think it's fair to say that many of them support him, particularly because of UBI. And the whole idea of a universal-based income is like Social Security for all, which is a, an attempt to actually help people who are struggling. So when you have people who are struggling and they're looking for solutions, you know, 
there's another candidate in the race who happens to be the front runner who's offering real solutions to real problems. Um, and so I think Yang also recognizes that. I think Yang supported Bernie in 2016, and now he's worked himself into a political position where if he, comes, if he drops out and steps up and endorses Bernie, that could have a very, very positive effect on the race. Um, so, you know, don't, don't feel too bad, Yang people. He's, he came so far, so far with the actively hostile media and everybody writing him off, and he was on the debate stage so many times. And, um, you know, he, Yang knew going into this it was an outsider uh, campaign, a real outsider campaign, because um, he's a businessman. He wasn't even, you know... He wasn't even a, a public name beforehand, and uh, and he wasn't a politician. So you got to give him nothing but credit. And um, I do think he'll drop out at some point and then endorse Bernie. And then obviously it's up to his supporters to determine what they want to do. But I think many of the Yang people will end up supporting Bernie because they really want to address many of the problems. And there's a lot of crossover between Yang and Bernie when it comes to, to a variety of policies. So. Anyway, um, there's your update. It looks like Yang is already dropping some hints here that uh, he'll drop out soon, and we'll see what happens from there. Let's do Shahid Batar. You guys are going to really love this. So Shahid Batar is uh, running against Nancy Pelosi for Congress. And he released an ad that shows me some love. <laughs> I like how I made the whole ad about me. Obviously, the ad is like it's got way more stuff in there beyond, you know, kind of like a, a little bit of a shout out to me. But uh, let's take a look and uh, we'll discuss after. Nancy Pelosi faces a challenger of her own. Shahid Buttar announced his plans to unseat the California Congressman and plans to challenge Pelosi. A constitutional attorney works at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, a grassroots activist, an artist, and candidate challenging Nancy Pelosi in a Democratic primary, Shahid Buttar. Not only does he support Medicare for all, but he also wants to cut military spending. With the congressional candidate trying to end the way too long
and his fusion of a socialist commitment to justice for everybody is exactly synthesis of the right? Tireless, brilliant, fearless, and watch out. He's going to surprise a lot of people in this race. He understands average, everyday people. The most effective way to reach somebody is face to face. Really changed in 2020. So just so everybody understands, we're not just taking on the Republican Party in Washington, D.C. and the establishment Republicans. We're also taking on the establishment Democrats. And I'm not playing about this. I'm not playing about this. We're going to fight. We're going to fight. Take care of folks who took care of everybody. And end up the surveillance state, and end up military spending. We need a representative that really represents San Francisco's values. First of all, that ad was amazing. That's a really, really powerful ad. Second of all, like more than half of the people who are talking in that ad are all friends of mine. (laughs) And they're all, you know, like new media lefty people. So that was really, really cool. You saw, you know, uh, Rising. He had Rising in there. I um, I heard Humanist Report, Mike. Um, I saw Ben Burgess, Michael Brooks. So in case, you know, in case you didn't catch it, he's really leaning into the whole, like, I'm a real lefty and, you know, here are some lefty new media people. Now, you know what all of us stand for and what we believe in. And Shahid is, uh, he's the real deal, man. I was, I was reading his website the other day and I was going through his policies and I was like, Wow. All right, here we go. We got, you know, we got somebody who's going against Pelosi. And um, Pelosi, in many ways, she's like Teflon Don. You know, she's got, for whatever reason, she's got support in elections despite all of her problems. But when you have a candidate like Shahid and, you know, he is, he's a superstar on the issues and, as a candidate, he's also really good too. I've, I've heard him speak and I'm, you know, very moving. So we can do it, man. We could take down Nancy Pelosi. Nancy Pelosi has blocked all of the positive change that we need in this country. She has been gaslighting the left for so long. And as my friend Jenk Uger says, who's also running for Congress, it's time to have some reinforcements for the squad. We need more Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's and Pramila Jayapal's and Ilhan Omar's and, you know, Rashida Tlaib's um, and Ro Khanna. We need, we need a very strong left-wing caucus. We need that. If we're ever going to get this change that we all want so desperately, we need those reinforcements. So I really hope that, you know, people who are in Jenk's district are supporting Jenk, donating to Jenk. You don't even need to be in his district to donate to him, but... You know, I hope that you're doing that uh, because he would be the enforcer of a President Bernie Sanders. And I really hope that if you're in, you know, California's 12th district, Nancy Pelosi's district, that you vote for Shahid Batar. Um, I'm going to leave his, uh, you know, his website below. And if you want to donate to him, you could donate to him. But listen, bottom line is we have. Like, we're making the moves that need to be made. We're not just kind of like sitting around and letting the centrists, you know, run amok and do whatever the hell they want. No, now you have a left movement where all these good candidates are getting involved. 
Um, so there's no excuse now is the point. Like, if our candidates lose, that's, that's on us. That's on us for not doing enough because he's doing everything he can. So we need to get out there. We need to – we got to win these races. It's so important because you've got the old Democratic guard, you know, and they really do believe in neoliberal corporate centrism. And now you have this strong movement of really populist left social democratic fighters. And we can win, man. We can win. All things being equal, we win because our ideology is more popular. So, but the problem is all things are not equal. Our candidates are oftentimes massively underfunded. AOC needed to win 10 to 1 money disadvantage. She, she, it was fight, she was fighting uphill battle the entire time. So let's help these candidates get over the finish line. You know, if you want to donate to Shahid, I'll leave, um, you know, all the information below. I'll also leave jank stuff below if you want to donate to him as well. Uh, and by the way, super important fact, you know, I'm only one person, and I have a show to do that's also news, so I can't just make this like a, a cheerleading outlet for all the left candidates. But you don't need me. Go to justicedemocrats.com. Go to Our Revolution, you know. Um, look online in other lefty circles. I know that there are other shows that do like interviews on a semi-regular basis and they bring on, you know, progressive candidates. So do yourself a favor and make sure you try to stay on top of who is running and who's on the left because they try to hide it from you. Cause Shahid's not going to get like mainstream media coverage. He's just not because, you know, they love Pelosi. So it's on us to kind of go around the system and keep our eye on the ball and see what's happening. So go to justicedemocrats.com, go to our revolution, see who DSA is endorsing. Um, you know, look at other lefty circles online, on Twitter, whatever it may be, because there are a lot of good candidates out there. And, you know, I, I can't cover all of them and I feel bad, but this is just take a look for yourself and make sure um, because Imagine if we get all the reinforcements that we need. Man, that would be incredible. That would be incredible. So anyway, uh, Jenks' information is below. Shahid's information will be first, and Jenks will be below it. And if you want to support them uh, however you can, I'm sure they'd really welcome that. Okay. All right, let me do one more. Let me do one more, you bitch, you bitch. I got to pull up a, a makeshift graphic here, which is what I'm doing. Okay. This is going to be funny. We'll finish on a funny note, guys. All right, so I want to check in uh, on one Rave Dubin. He, uh, you know, he still has a show, <laughs> and uh, he's still doing the same, <laughs> the same silly stuff he's always done. You know, he really, his stock has gone down big time. And I was just talking about this to somebody recently. If you don't really believe in anything, it's tough to be a political figure, new media figure, because like eventually people catch on to the fact that you don't really believe in anything. And so it's, what are you doing? Your show and what you do is not about anything. It just is, it just exists. 
and it's like, you know, permanently floating around in limbo, and it's unmoored, and it's not, there's no core to it. There's no there there. It's just like you exist, and you're in the ether, and you just say stuff, but it could be contradicting something you said a month ago or a year ago because you don't really believe in anything. So it's, you can't keep that up. You just can't keep that up. And that's Rave Dubin, you know, Mr. I've ideologically transformed or whatever. Um, he's not doing too well. <laughs> his own subreddit is like all people just who used to be fans of his now just eviscerating him and obliterating him on a daily basis because they now see through him. So anyway, Larry King came on his show, hilarious. Um, and here's what happened mid-interview.
somebody you're talking to that I don't know if I've ever seen. <laughs> that was like full 10 out of 10. Don't give a fuck about being on this show or who you are or what you think we're doing here. Um, yeah, I got other more important things I'm going to talk to. I think it's his son or something. I don't know, but man, the look on Dave's face made that probably one of the best clips ever because there's a, it's a rush of emotions of like, am I this irrelevant? Isn't this disrespectful? Okay. But it's Larry King. So I can't really get mad. So I'm just going to sit here and awkwardly smile and what is going on? (laughs) Oh, Dave. Oh, Dave. I guess it was live, or maybe it wasn't live, and um, he accidentally left it in. Maybe whoever edits for Dave is like doesn't like Dave anymore, and he's like, oh, I'm keeping that in for sure. And it was like a wink and a nod to the audience, like, mm, isn't, that, isn't that sad? Isn't that the most pathetic thing you've ever seen? Oh, oh come on, man. Yeah, so anyway, things are going well over at uh, Ruben Report. <laughs> Okay. All right, guys. We are done so for the day. All right, I love you guys. I'll talk to you soon. Tomorrow is New Hampshire. Keep your eye on what's happening in New Hampshire. So, yeah, love you. I'm out. Peace.